0: Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer and performer.
1: And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest.
0: Welcome to Soulful Insights, conversations exploring the synergy of psychology, emotion, and spirit. I'm Ruth Caterellis, psychologist, writer, and performer.
1: And I'm Rebecca Harris, author, psychotherapist, and educational consultant. These conversations are based on our studies, observations, and personal experiences. Take what resonates, leave the rest.
0: This episode is part two uh, looking at emotions. We'd like to acknowledge the original custodians of the land that we're recording on, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects to elders past and present, acknowledging that this land was never ceded.
1: Okay, so last episode we talked about emotions and um, one of the key things that we talked about was that we learn about emotion in our childhoods and we learn about what's acceptable and what's not from Our families and from the society around us, and we sort of learn what should be repressed and what is acceptable to be expressed and how to do that.
0: We also spoke about the fact that the more we are aware of the emotions that we're feeling, the more we understand ourselves, and in lots of ways, the easier it is to navigate life.
1: Yes, and we talked about sort of a bit of a pathway to that being acknowledging emotion without judgment and with curiosity, perhaps. To be able to allow us to sort of be with tricky emotions, as well as those ones that feel good, as a yeah, a bit of a pathway to kind of um, connecting with our emotion and not trying to make it go away or anything.
0: And to that end, we're going to kick off with a quote: "Whatever you don't express, you suppress. Whatever you suppress becomes depressed. Whatever is depressed decays and disintegrates." What do you think, Beck? Don't
1: suppress <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's pretty powerful and dramatic which which is accurate I think you know it is people talk about emotion that's unexpressed making you sick and I think that I agree. Agree with that.
0: Well, that speaks to the human being as a system, as opposed to an isolated. These are my thoughts. These are all my emotions. This is my body. I think it's getting better now, but certainly what science—the uh, idea that science promoted—that those bits are separate, um, as opposed to the fact that actually we are a unit. We are one thing, and so what I think impacts what I feel, impacts how I respond physically, uh, impacts what my my body does. Ideally, all of those bits of the brain that control those different um, mechanisms are all connected, ideally. And I think the point that you made about um, suppression, you know, I, I tend to think that in every cell of our body, There's a consciousness that is emotionally based. So, you know, we get really hung up on tears. People really struggle to cry. Even people who will come in, I'm thinking therapeutically, will come in and say, oh, no, I'm really comfortable with my emotions. But then we'll start to cry and start to apologise, which clearly shows a level of discomfort because the message that we get is that tears are somehow weak, being vulnerable is, you know, not okay. If you are emotional, then something must be wrong as opposed to you're in a state of emotion, but the tears are moving you through that. You know, I tend to see it as energy in motion. So if we allow that energy to move, it releases that from the cells in your body. So, you know, we are whatever percent water. And so to not allow that emotion to to move we do start to hold on and become tight, rigid, depressed, feel like we have to control everything.
1: Mm. And, I mean, the act of crying too releases hormones that then play a really important role in what happens next after we have released. So it is all absolutely so interconnected when we allow whatever needs to come, to come. Yeah,
0: and I I mean, I think... Another way to say that or a different way is just to allow ourselves to be. I'm feeling emotional right now. I can be in that state. I can be angry at the moment. I can be whatever it is I need to be. I sometimes use an analogy when I'm working. Emotions are a river and they take you somewhere. You don't know where the destination. You haven't been on that particular boat before. Some people, maybe fewer people, are prepared to get on the boat and just go, I'm going to see where it takes me and out of that sometimes comes insight. I understand now why maybe I've had to travel down this river because I know what's at the end of it. Some people are kind of prepared to get in the boat but don't actually want to go very far or want to control the way it goes. Some people want to stand on the bank of the river and look at the boat and go, I'm not getting in that. But generally when we jump in, it takes us somewhere that we need to go. Mm -hmm. But like any destination, any road that we haven't, any journey that we haven't been on yet, we don't know where we're going. So there's a level of trust or faith in that that's important.
1: Mm, Yeah. And I think that returning to that idea that uh, the thoughts, feelings and physical stuff is all interlinked, like there are so many clues and ways for us to listen to try to identify or get that insight you know, that you're referred to. And it is, you know, it's intriguing the way that we all have different experiences with that. And um, yeah, it's one thing I notice working with, with young people too is often they don't, when they don't have that, um, that internal body sensation stuff, the interoception, they don't know if they're hot or if they're cold or if they're thirsty or, and we see it in little kids when, when they do their little, I need to go to the toilet dance or whatever, but the message hasn't gotten through. Without that, you know, it's hard to, have the understanding about what the emotion is, and also to have the language to talk about what the emotion is. You sort of need you need all three. And coming back to parenting and kids again, it's part of what we do as parents is we name what's happening, ideally, hmm. so that so that we can learn and we can have that that integration and gain insight and not be sort of trapped in it not moving or standing on the bank of the river like I don't know what's going on yeah so
0: that that makes me think about when we get talked out of it because babies are all emotion I mean really kids up until they're about six are all emotion they don't have the capacity to intellectualize or rationalize in the way that we do but babies all they have is emotion so I'm cold, I'm hungry, I'm wet, I'm dirty, I wah, I cry. That is my only mechanism for communication. But it's clear and little kids know what they want. But again, as we spoke about last time, we get the message that what we want isn't actually okay with our caregivers. So we go, oh, what am I supposed to want? Mm-hmm. They want something else for me. What am I supposed to want? And I think, therefore, that, uh, which is different to having the language to describe it, but that internal clarity around, I want this, this feels better than that, I don't want to do that, it, it essentially gets subverted because we're being told that we should want other things than what we want often on a first session, I will give homework that says, for the next week or two, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do. I want you to really listen. You know, what do you want to eat? What do you want to do? You know, we have conversations about, you know, what if I don't want to go to work? Or what if I want to drink, you know, two bottles of wine? So, you know, there are some parameters and we talk through those. But essentially, it's what is is your basic desire, what feels good for you to try and reconnect people. Some clients just go, wow, that was amazing, liberating. And some people go, that was really hard. Mm. I did not know what I wanted.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that makes me think of, I guess, a few things. Like you're saying, we get trained out of even listening to what we want. But we also, for many people, we learn to please the people around us because it feels like a safe thing to do. And it is, you know, that is a nervous system response too so that when we have a sense of not feeling safe and that can be physically but it can also be emotionally most often, when you have that emotional unsafety, that sense, your brain responds, your nervous system responds to all senses of not being safe the same way basically. So we're trained up to, you know... (laughs) to respond to predators chasing us or whatever but the predator might just be someone with a stern face you know it's we Absolutely. have the same response
0: because it's a withdrawal of love you know so when we are doing things right I mean and babies get that really you know oh, look they're clapping their hands how cute how gorgeous that is oh you know they've grabbed something they shouldn't grab and and we are constantly looking for that kind of reinforcement so You know, that withdrawal of love, suddenly I'm getting yelled at or I'm getting um, a stern look. Your face is changing, the energy is changing, you're treating me differently. And you're right. Because I want to go back to that state of being connected to you because that is my survival, then I start to do what I know that you are wanting me to do. And I watch you. I watch you really carefully for those cues. When am I good? when am I not good
1: Yeah, and, and well, when is
0: your love constant?
1: Yeah, when am I safe, when am I not safe yes. as well. And um, that I'm trying to think, I can't remember when when it happened, but the still face experiment that was done, Ed Tronic is the the researcher that is, it's quite distressing to watch actually, but essentially the little, you know, maybe nine, 12-month-old with, um, with the mother, Having that lovely interaction that you're just describing, aren't you clever? Clapping a little, and and then the the mother just removes all emotion from her face, and the babies go through the nervous system responses, which, according to polyvagal theory, are hierarchical, and they tend to start with the first one. I'm trying to engage. I'm fawning. I'm trying to connect. I'm showing you all my tricks. Look, I'm pointing. I'm clapping, and if that and when that doesn't work, the fight flight. Which of course, as a, for a baby, they don't have. Those options, they can't totally. fight or flee, so they cry. So that's what they've got on offer. And if it continues, they go quiet. They go into their freeze response, which is the most desperate of all responses, of course.
0: Well, it's the withdrawal into self, isn't it? It's kind of what you were talking about last time about you know um, going into my own. And withdrawing my energy to a place that feels safer.
1: Yeah, and when animals do it, they appear dead. You know, their breathing slows down, their heart rate slows down. They seem to their predators as though they're dead, which is a risk to the predator because they might be make the predator sick if they ate them. You know, that's where that's how base it is. And I do have to say that in the experiment, there is repair that is done very quickly and beautifully, and. Um, And that's a really important point because it's actually all about repair. Of course, parents have a response to things, particularly when a child's doing something that makes them unsafe, that might be frightening to the child, yelling to stop them touching a hot stove or whatever. That's important. It's the repair that makes that okay. It's not being in a constant state of fear a constant state of overwhelm. That's where the problems start.
0: And the communication in that, this is why I raised my voice Mm. because that's not safe. Or, you know, there is a reason why you have to hold my hand when we cross the road. And if you don't want to hold my hand, that's okay, but we're not crossing the road.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's worth pointing out that we all have a tendency sort of, you know, at least one Go, general go-to in that nervous those nervous system responses and all the people pleasers out there, myself included will know that you know that fawn response can kick in so fast you don't even know you're doing it. And that's why I love that homework that you set for your clients. It can be really challenging if that's what you're used to doing. Absolutely because we are essentially
0: trained to make life easy for others, to not necessarily stand up for what we want. And of course there are times when we do, you know, let go of what maybe we want because for the greater good it makes more sense or don't really care and you've got a really strong need and that's fine. But there are times where we don't look after ourselves by giving in to things that we don't really want or we don't say something, we don't say no when we want to say no. Because we're scared of the repercussions and we're fundamentally scared of that withdrawal of love.
1: That's right. And then as you, know, as you point out, then you, you stop being able to identify actually what you really want or what your emotions might be in a situation. And, and then, yeah, you're setting yourself up with that automatic suppression that's happening even without a conscious choice.
0: Because our point of reference becomes, what does the other person think I should be doing? Because if I'm pleasing the other person, then I'm okay.
1: Yeah. Which clearly is a false premise. So learning to identify what is it that's happening for me is really, really important. And you know, using those clues, like what's happening in my mind or what's happening in my body, like what messages am I getting from myself to tell me actually how I feel and whether or not I'm listening and responding.
0: And that question about why we don't listen, you know, because again, going back, you know, know, it all stems from childhood. I think, you know, sometimes when a new client come in, you'll go, yes, sorry, I am going to ask about your childhood and it feels like, you know, classic Psych 101, but there is a reason because we get talked out of really listening to ourselves to our thoughts, to our feelings, to our preferences. And so we can end up, and I think it, this often happens, people in their, often in their early twenties kind of go, who am I? I'm lost. I don't know what I think. I don't know what I want. I don't know where I'm going. I feel like I'm supposed to be at this particular stage. Says who? But I do don't know what i feel so i have lost the mechanisms which are essentially my my navigators because if i'm listening to what i think or what i feel or the messages that my body gets that's my indicator of my direction what's right for me what feels right for me move towards that what's my passion you know if you have a passion to be a writer no don't become a bookkeeper mm-hmm. follow your passion because your psyche is telling you that's your interest But if we don't listen to those things, if the caregivers around us give us such strong messages that they know best what's for us, we stop trusting.
1: Yeah. And it can be, you know, it can come from different directions too. And it can come from that self-protection that we might be protecting through having experienced fear, whether that's fear that stems from, yeah, withdrawal of love generally, or physical fear and or other things, but also from parents who over anticipate and try to meet needs before the needs have even been felt by the um, the infant. And I feel like, you know, you just need to be in a, a room of five-year-olds and you can see exactly who's had all their needs met a moment before the need is has come, because there's no sort of sense of what the needs are or recognition even of what might seem really obvious to people around them.
0: So you mean the young person hasn't identified their need? The parents just assumed that there that yeah. that will be a need?
1: Yeah, yeah, without explaining, like like you you know we were saying before, you might say, I, I'm doing this to keep you safe. You might say, I'm taking your jumper off because I can see from your red face that you're a bit hot and if, if that's never spoken it's just done or you know you have to eat because it's eating time as opposed to being you know learning to trust your hunger which changes all the time all of that kind of thing and then of course we all go to school and you eat on a bell and go to the toilet <laughs> on a bell and uh, not just the children the adults do that too and work is the same you know how how many people sit in offices just doing one more email, even though they know they need to go to the toilet? It's, you know, that's the physical side of not acknowledging what's happening for you in that moment and choosing to not meet your own needs in order to meet someone else's.
0: And I think, you know, schools are particularly problematic with that because, It's a system that's designed to educate for what purpose and in what way because we all learn differently and we all have different interests and aspirations. How do we manage and form these young people into adults who are supposed to be whatever, functioning, productive, again, you know, set of values that get put on, this is who you're supposed to be? But yes, with all of those artificially, you know, you have to do maths until this certain. What if I hate maths? (laughs) You don't have a choice. Well, then don't expect me to sit in class and be good because I'm going to be disruptive because I don't want to be there.
1: Well, we have a whole school system that was built to support the industrial revolution. (laughs) It's designed for parents to be at work. And so, of course, it's not centred around children and recognising needs and even giving time to having emotions because they're very inconvenient in the classroom a lot of the time. And so again, the messaging is coming that it's, you know, that's inconvenient or it's not appropriate or it just needs to be dealt with,
0: managed. And dealt with sometimes by people who, again, haven't got their own emotional system sorted so you know they might be dealing with a kid who for whatever reason is distressed or is upset or is reactive and they bring their own reactivity to it and suddenly we have you know what could have been just a little spark suddenly we have a bonfire.
1: Um, That's right and we you know we talk a lot about this idea of self-regulation and what we're teaching what we need to teach children is self-regulation and it's a really it's an interesting question to me because none of us operate away from other people and relationships and relationships with nature and animals and uh, as well as people. Yeah, I have some curiosity about self-regulation and what it actually means because I, I really, you know, as we've been discussing, we learn about our emotions from other people when we're small. So that's, co-regulation or um, lack of co-regulation but it happens all the time through life too so you know I I think about how quickly your heart rate can rise if um, you hear someone near you shouting they don't need to be shouting at you but if it makes you feel uh, have a response a nervous system response that might say oh am I in danger You know, that we respond constantly out in the world. Our nervous systems respond to other people and other creatures' nervous systems constantly. So I just, yeah, I really feel like co-regulation is where it's at and I'm not actually entirely sure um, when we talk about self-regulation, what are we talking about? We're talking about regulating our emotions. Are we talking about controlling or suppressing or... Or what? (laughs) Reducing
0: overwhelm, you know. And I have to say, when I... um, I mean, these were not terms that were used when I was studying. When I hear the term regulation, the idea of control is what's suggested to me. And I think that's tricky because I don't think controlling emotions is the way to go. I think understanding them... uh, I would use the word manage. But in an ideal, the way I see it, in an ideal world... When we're little, we would be able to explore the entire range of our emotions. We'd be able to sit with the highs of the fun and the ecstatic excitement and the, you know, that, that is huge with kids, yeah, that kind of joy, that noisy joy that sometimes people want to quieten down, you're being too noisy, don't get too excited, um, to, the, to the distress and the temper tantrums because I can't have what I want. And plenty of adults have temper tantrums too. Mm -hmm. But I think if as kids we are given the space to be able to feel and explore that range, we, we start to learn to understand what our range is and what feels right for us because we don't, Generally, we don't want to feel bad. We don't want to do that. We don't do that because we're being difficult. We feel it because we are having a response to something in our environment. And so if we're able to explore that range, we have a much better, and again, I'm saying this as an ideal because I don't think I've ever seen it happen. And it certainly wasn't the way I was raised. But I believe we've got a much better idea about going, these are the colours of my emotions. What colours do I want to sit in? And I'm much better in a position to understand them because I haven't had to suppress them to please somebody else. And I haven't had to judge them because I haven't got somebody else telling me, no, you should not be angry. Well, you know, plenty of people are angry with good reason. So so coming back to that notion the the better you know your emotions the better you understand why you are reactive so for example somebody who hears somebody yelling in the street if you were raised in a home where there was a lot of vehemence a lot of violence you are much more likely to be reactive to that sound because it has echoes for you of stuff that you've experienced than somebody who goes what's that person yelling at why are they yelling they're making a fuss. Why? Mm-hmm. So we we perceive things through the lens that we were raised in primarily, which goes back to the notion that we are individual. We do feel things differently. Some people feel things much more acutely. Some people's access to feelings and, and the strength of their feelings is less. But we all need to be able to sit within the range of our feelings and work out what's right for us.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love that idea of that the range and the color of of feelings and I think when we do a lot of suppressing too, sometimes the flood comes anyway. And that overwhelming experience does benefit from, you know, perhaps having some strategies of knowing how to self-soothe, which is a which is different to self-regulate, isn't it? But to soothe yourself in those moments and and again, it links back into that idea of thoughts and feelings and sensations too, that because you can use those as both clues and entry points too. So I, I notice that when my stress levels are higher, I become very reactive, physically reactive to noise, and you know I'll be really jumpy and often make a loud exclamation when I hear a loud noise. That's a physical clue for me that I'm experiencing a bit of stress. Mm. But also I can use physical things to support me if I'm recognising my emotions of worry or stress or overwhelm as well. I can use breath or movement or being underwater in the shower or whatever as an entry point for self-soothing, for me as well, and just as I'm saying it, I'm thinking maybe that's sort of more the the angle for 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 showing children that it's not about controlling emotion, but it's about when you're overwhelmed, how can you bring some self-care and soothing into a moment that supports your ability to be with that emotion. Mm. Yeah, I think
0: that's really important. I lost a partner when I was in my late 20s and... It was a huge, huge time for me, but I learned something really important, which was I, at that time, so I don't know, I was 28, 29, I think, um, and it was a very sudden death. And I had no option but to sit with those emotions. I had no choice. And work dried up for me. So suddenly I was kind of in a house I had, <laughs> um, we had animals and I had cats and a couple of dogs to look after, and I literally feel like I went to bed for six months with Agatha Christie books and the animals, and uh, I did a lot of crying, I did a lot of yelling, I'm sure I had a lot of baths, because that's always, uh, speaking of hot water, that's always my go-to, but also sitting in that place gives you something, because despite it not being comfortable... You learn something about yourself in the passage of that time and there are certain emotions like grief that you cannot rush. Mm. Grief takes its time. You know, it. Um, I heard it described once in a way that I love, which is it, it hides in pockets and comes in waves. Mm. So there are moments where you're going through a wave of grief where, There is really no choice and you can rush around and you can distract yourself, but moving through those currents, it's a little bit like if you get it caught in a rip, you know, they say, don't fight it, Mm, let it take you out, you'll come out of it and then, then you can swim to the side and grief is a lot like that. And I think what's important in that is, is again, it's the thing of recognising the feelings, recognising the emotions, but recognising that, that you don't have to act on every emotion. I mean, if we acted on every emotion that we feel, then that becomes problematic. You know, you might sometimes feel like I am so angry with you that I could shake you. Don't do it. Yeah. You know, feel the feeling, acknowledge that's how angry I am, and maybe go for a walk.
1: Yeah, that's right. And no, don't judge it, but
0: recognize yeah, it and it. and acknowledge it as just, you know, again, it's not who you doesn't speak to who you are, it speaks to where you are in that moment and that you have been so activated that you are feeling a level of fury or rage and that, you know, you're not gonna stay there forever.
1: Yeah. I think I think a you know, a huge part of coping well and being present to and connected with our emotions is communication and it's the way we communicate with each other but also just with ourselves <laughs> and and that's acknowledgement is is communicating so finding it being able to name it and and with the people around us too and i think that's a shift away from the blame or what can happen when we are experiencing big emotions is you know you're making me really angry or it, we really um attribute how we're feeling to other people a lot and we maybe we want them to fix it or stop it or maybe we just want to blame them because that feels a bit easier but so much changes when you you talk about what's happening for you as opposed to <laughs> talking about what the problem might be with someone else but it takes a lot of a lot of practice I know um yes at home, my partner and I use the phrase, I'm having a reaction a a lot. And it's so delightfully neutral and you own it yourself. And it's true. We all have reactions to stuff all the time, to things our partners say, or our kids or other people. We have reactions to something we see on the telly. We have a reaction to today. My reaction to stuffing something up when I'm making dinner is different to what it would have been yesterday. You know, I think there are Ways that we can communicate that really support understanding each other's emotional landscape and understanding our own as well. And I
0: think that's really significant when you're talking about the notion of co-regulation. If I can work out what's mine, you know, you doing something is yours, my reaction to it is mine. Mm. And I can try and control and go, don't do that again because I don't like how I feel when you do that. But I am pushing the proverbial uphill because, you know, one of the things that we can't do, which, you know, I I hope is a given. We cannot control what other people do. We can't control what they think. I mean, as parents, we know we can't control our kids. We can try until the cows get home, but it's not helpful because it just creates tension for everybody. But we can go, all right, I'm having as you said, I'm having this reaction, it's mine, what's it attached to? Mm. What bit of me, what what part of me has been activated and why? And it will almost always have its roots in childhood, yeah? You know, something that I, I'm sensitive to or something that you've done that irritates me just because it irritates me, but it may have been something that my one of my parents used to say, this is what you're supposed to do, this is the way you're supposed to do that thing. And it's like, well, why didn't you do that thing that way? Mm. So being able to own your own feelings and create a really clear boundary around what am I responsible for and what am I not? Because I think that also then opens the door to compassion, which is a really important emotion. Because if I am not taking responsibility for your reaction to something, I can sit with you while you're going through it.
1: Yes, without I can, being defensive. Without is, being
0: defensive or going, you know, well, you did that. You know, I don't have to play that game. And it is a game. It is a way that, again, we try and keep ourselves safe and not take responsibility. But if I can sit with you in your emotion, I can go, all right, maybe I could have done it differently, maybe not. You know, yeah. maybe this is just the way I wanted to do it and I can hear that that's upset you. We can talk about it. But at the end of the day, my emotion is my work and... I don't want to make it somebody else's work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're so right about compassion. Like that's just, that is just so important when we're working with other people or living with other people or in relationships with other people because it does allow that. And I like the the saying, compassion is empathy in action. You know, like mm-hmm. we can feel, we can feel empathy deeply in a way that it actually hurts us that's unhelpful but when we feel compassion you know it's it's different it's not just saying I feel I feel your pain and now I've doubled it because I've got it as well it's saying I've you know I recognize your pain I understand it I'm here with you to uh to be present to it and take some action perhaps even if that action is just being with
0: Totally. And I think when we absorb somebody else's, I mean, I would say that is beyond empathy. I would say that is not having your own emotional boundaries Mm. so that what happens is that you're, you've absorbed that other person's and you've taken it on as yours as opposed to being able to kind of keep that clear delineation about what is yours and what's mine. I think the other thing that's important about compassion is what you were saying before. If we can hold compassion for ourselves and others, we don't need to judge. We can just go, okay, you're having a moment or I'm having a moment right now and I don't have to judge it as bad or good. I can just go, that's the moment I'm having. I'm going to look at that because I can. If I'm neutral about it or or just curious about it, then I can look at it really clearly. I can take it all apart. I can trace it back and I can go, ah, there's that thing that I know. That's what reacted that. And then I can deal with it. Mm -hmm. I can stay away from that situation. I can apologize if I need to. I can do whatever I need to do to make amends. But if I don't hold that compassion. If I judge it, then again, I just got my feet stuck further in the mud and I I don't want to look at it. And if somebody else, if I'm getting defensive about what somebody else is bringing to the table, I don't want to look at theirs either. Thank you very much. Because I'm judging it. I'm telling myself that I'm, you know, maybe I'm bad because I've created in that person, a reaction. They're having an um, an emotional response to something that I've done and I take the blame myself, so I don't want to hear it as opposed to recognising it. Well, yes, they're having a reaction, but it's theirs. Mm. Yeah,
1: and that obviously that self-compassion and compassion for others just goes hand in hand and it is so essential to that being connected to our emotion and then being able to be connected to other people and to the world around us in a way that's not not too difficult or too painful or too hard. And so important that because I think,
0: you know, lots of us have a fear of being seen because... Again, we kind of tell ourselves that there's stuff that's not okay about us. There are feelings mm-hmm. that we have that we shouldn't have or there's things that we do or, we've, you know, people have projected stuff onto us and we've taken it on as ours. And so that means that getting close to somebody becomes tricky. A risk Absolutely a risk because what if they see that thing that I am hiding under you know under my bed that I don't want them to see as opposed to going, well, actually, that thing is not really a thing. It's just a moment that I pass through or it's just something somebody else projected onto me that's not really me. If I'm not intimate with my emotions, then it's really hard for me to be intimate with you yeah. because I am scared to let you close to me. I don't really want you to see me because I don't trust who I am.
1: And so all those things are just so connected, aren't they? That emotion, being connected to our own emotion, experiencing self-compassion and compassion for others and a willingness to experience vulnerability in the Presence of others. Like.
0: Absolutely. And an ab- a preparedness to get it wrong. Yeah. You know, like we don't, we are human. We are not perfect. It is impossible as a human being to be perfect. And perfect is a static state. We actually don't want to be perfect. We want to be evolving. We want to be yeah. growing. But if we have this sense that we have to be perfect, or that we can't make a mistake, we can't make an error, that also means that we don't want to get up close and personal
1: because
0: mm. we might stuff it up. And if we don't forgive ourselves, we don't believe other people are going to forgive us either.
1: Yeah. So self-compassion Self-compassion, so <laughs>
0: absolutely. And, you know, in terms of the, going back to your point about the, the stuff and the idea around self-regulation, we grow into our emotional selves. So children can't self-regulate really, because they don't have the, they have not yet developed the, the rational consciousness, if you like. And in our teens and twenties, we are a flood of emotions and we've got hormones going on and we've got people telling us that we're supposed to be that. And, you know, we may or may not, you know, physically we are, have grown to a point, but we may not necessarily have stepped into, because many human beings on the planet don't do it, into emotional adulthood And so we we are bombarded by all this stuff and we are going to have reactions. We're going to have emotional responses all throughout our lives. And really the beauty is being able to kind of ride the waves, Mm. if you like, and to, as you said before, find the things that soothe me. I had a rocky year this year and I spent a lot of time in the bath and there were some days I was having two or three hot showers because for me water, Mm. you know, Scorpio, water is soothing.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, For some people, it is absolutely being in nature. For some people, it's going to bed for a while. And we get messages about that too. You shouldn't want to do that. You know, that's depression. Actually, depression is lots and lots of little anger, little bits of anger that you haven't maybe dealt with. But sometimes having a doona day, whether you're feeling anxious or distressed, angry, sometimes that can be hugely beneficial because you're stepping into your solitude and it doesn't always have to be destructive.
1: Mm-hmm. I think not judging ourselves for the um, actions that we take to self-soothe is really important too. Absolutely. And
0: again, as long as we you know, in the guise of compassion, as long as we're not doing damage to anybody in yep. the process of that, then doing whatever it is that you need to becomes important.
1: Wrapping up this second conversation about emotion where we've kind of come to is uh, accepting our emotions and other people's, doing our best to not feel responsible for anyone else's responses and reactions, bringing compassion and kindness to others and to ourselves, being with and riding the waves of emotion. Lovely. (laughs) See you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Soulful Insights. Follow us for more content and feel free to reach out and let us know if there's anything you'd like to hear on a future episode.